0: I am a co-founder of Barnbridge. Uh, We don't really have like titles because it's a DAO. We never started a, uh, we never started a company. There was no like Cayman entity. We set up a DAO and essentially just uh, worked with the seed team to fund it. So there's really five co-founders, but Basically, like there's the development team that built a lot of uh, products at Consensus that uh, people in the community would know if they like use a lot of like Ethereum products. Um, the dev team, I think, took like uh, they took a larger chunk of the long term governance than me and Troy did because we're just one people each. And like the dev team has like a larger uh, group of people to take care of. But we decentralized the governance from like the very beginning for Barnbridge, um, where I really wanted it so that like no singular party could, uh, could be like a dictator, including me, even though like it was originally my idea. Um, but again, like I, I think that Troy is very good at governance uh, and like how DAOs work and structuring incentives the dev team is a, is a very, very good dev team. And like a lot of times in crypto, people don't pay enough attention to the devs. And then there's like me who got, you know, like everybody involved and a lot of the investors involved. So, I mean, if you really believe in decentralization, I think that like a lot of people have trouble decentralizing things from the very beginning. And I was pretty adamant about that. Um, But yeah. So, I mean, that's just like generally like how the structure of our governance works. Like we, we distributed it day one, but in terms of like who I am, when I say like I'm a co-founder of Barnbridge, I've worked in the space since late 2016. I really got involved in early 2017. Like I had heard of Bitcoin uh, before and I have a finance degree. So I never, I mean, a lot of people get mad when I say this, but I I never really saw the use case for Bitcoin, uh, like super early on, or I probably would have gotten involved in crypto later just because the concept of decentralization, uh, definitely, uh, I'm, I would say I'm like a decentralization maximalist. So like, I like that aspect of Bitcoin, but I didn't get into crypto per se until I started to understand the concept with Ethereum that you can write like if then statements into the money. Um, and so that changed everything for me, right? Like if you can essentially start writing code where, uh, all right. So you have Bitcoin, which is like peer-to-peer cash. And if you think of Ethereum as peer-to-peer cash that behaves a certain way, then that's completely different, right? So you can now go into an agreement with someone and the cash behaves a certain way if the agreement's met or if the agreement isn't met. So like, you're not, you're not really worried about legal contracts anymore. You're worried about smart contracts and what the codes say mm-hmm. um, in order to fulfill both sides of, of an agreement, right? And so that, that blew my mind. Like at that point I was just kind of hooked and I've never stopped working in, in crypto since that point that I figured that out. And so I was working early stage consensus I think I was only an employee of consensus for a month because I always had my own companies. Like even before I got into crypto, I was an entrepreneur. Um, but I worked with consensus from you know late 2016 through late 2018. I worked with a lot of different companies in the ecosystem, Earn.com, like before they were acquired by Coinbase and then even after. Uh, and I worked with a lot of you know, early stage concepts, like helping doing UI, helping go through their white paper, helping figure out how they could position uh, some of what they were doing. And I think it gave me a really unique understanding of crypto because I was able to read so many different papers, work with so many different teams. I saw a lot of teams succeed and I saw a lot of teams fail. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, it definitely helped me figure out what I needed to do when Barnbridge came along.
1: So from what I've read from what you've written on Barnbridge, so your Medium post, your white paper, your FAQs, Barnbridge is more, it's less of economics design. So it's less of using tokens to align incentives for the entire product and more of financial product design because you're creating, you're structuring different kind of crypto assets or different crypto protocols and you are creating you're defining the different risks and yield from these very diverse set of protocols. So do you think that, would you say that that came from your financial background or that came from reading so many different protocol or white papers from consensus that gave you this idea to start Bondbridge?
0: I would say both. So when I came out of school, uh, I started, I mean, I my finance degree didn't teach me anything about Barnbridge. I mean, other than just like how basic finance works, right? Like, I mean, maybe I learned about derivative tranches and like finance 301, but nothing nothing like that in depth, right? Like it was probably a question on the test, but I did work with a subsidiary of JP Morgan um, after I came out of school trading extremely illiquid tranche debt. And basically at the time, like JP Morgan would use non-positioning brokers to move out of positions because if the other side of the trade knew that it was one of the bulge bracket firms, they essentially knew it was like junk because it took JP Morgan like years to even find out what was on their balance sheets Uh because the the structures were just so complex. Uh Um, So like that, that was like my introduction into like how complicated debt structuring can get outside of like what's in your in your textbooks when you're like learning finance right then fast forward a couple years i i start working with a company called market protocol they're doing derivatives on chain um and basically they were really like synthetics before synthetics like they were doing like synthetic apple synthetic uh, tesla or at least trying to they ran out of runway because they really were like ahead of their time, like substantially. Um, But they didn't die. Like what we built there was like forked to MC decks, like Monte Carlo decks. I I think what MC decks is now, isn't like the everything that we built. It's not like they just copied it, but like they definitely used it as the framework for um, what they've become. And so that, that was my introduction. Like, that's like, we're talking like mid, early 2018 at this point. Um, then crypto kind of dies, it crashes. And I would say like fast forward a year, I'm working with uh, like leaders in the space were probably like a little bit easier to access in 2019 because I don't think anybody like cared at crypto at that point other than like the people who really believed in it. And so I saw like at the time there were people that uh, like Andrew Keys was trying to sell ethereum to like state street like mark yusko i never worked with mark yusko but um he lives in my town so like i get like coffee and lunch with him a good bit and he uh he was trying to sell like bitcoin to calpers and they all kind of ran ran into the same issue which was uh these these massive institutions were having a very difficult time at wanting to buy into crypto because of the underlying volatility of the assets right like yeah it was at 20k at one point and it seems like it's the future but it also was like 4k a month ago right so like bitcoin and i don't think anybody would argue that bitcoin is a very volatile asset and and so is ether
1: mm. okay so let's talk about let's get started with the kind of tokens that's available on bombridge before we start introducing bombridge because from yep. what i understand bombridge has two types of tokens you have the bond token and you have the bb vote tokens What's the difference and what are
0: they? Yeah. So our governance structure is uh, right now through a DAO and we wanted to essentially set up a DAO first, like, um, like I was explaining earlier, I think before we were recording, we never set up like an actual company. We like, we looked through everything like Cayman entities, like Malta entities, and we decided, really, based off of Kane at Synthetics, I asked him like, "What's one thing you would have done differently uh, if you were gonna do Synthetics over?" And he's like, "I would have just gone down Dow first because, now, um, especially when you look at things like Fi where they just kind of rolled out governance and like the community essentially has like voting into the ecosystem, like that's like." that's good from like a regulatory perspective, but it's also just like easier um, for like actual decentralization because it's it's hard to un unbundle these like foundations and companies and everything, and then give it to a DAO. There's all sorts of like tax implications. So we never started a company, we, we just started a DAO. At the time we used an Aragon DAO um, and, the Aragon DAO isn't gonna like actually work for what we're trying to do long-term. Um, it's just not like fluid enough, but it was absolutely like an out of the box, like godsend for us because like, you can just spin up a DAO in a couple minutes um, and start putting in parameters and editing the code. Uh, so like the BB Is that vote the fundraising
1: code? DAO? Huh? Because Aragon has this DAO system where you could fundraise and it's almost like an augmented bonding curve system. Where pe- people who fund who put funds in can be voting as well.
0: Yep, I don't remember which one we actually used, but we did not use the fundraising DAO. It had limitations. Um, the fundraising DAO almost seems like it's like more appropriate for like uh, like you could run an ICO out of the fundraising yeah, DAO, okay. but like we weren't trying to do an ICO, mm-hmm. so. There were limitations of the fundraising DAO. I think there's one called like an organization DAO or a company DAO, Mm -hmm. and that's the one that we used.
1: Okay.
0: Uh, But is that the the launch
1: DAO that you guys have? Because you have two DAOs: you have launch DAO and barn bridge DAO.
0: Yep. Well, technically, there's only the the launch DAO right now. Okay. Um, So the launch DAO won't exist long-term it's just a means to an end like the only purpose of the launch out is to hold the funds um so that we can vote out the funds to the dev team like because they have to pay salaries like up to this point me and troy and like uh even like the head of development like we haven't we don't pay ourselves anything like obviously that's going to need to change long term because I don't think any of us expected that Barnbridge was going to blow up this much. But basically, the entire purpose of the DAO was to get money in there to write code. Um, And we're building the actual DAO right now. Like I think like yesterday, we released a bunch of parameters for what that's going to look like. We've been working on it essentially since we released all the code for the yield farming papers like a couple weeks ago. Uh, And I was actually really excited that a lot of what we released yesterday is very similar to the stuff that Synthetics came out with today. Um, be- I mean, like anytime that you're kind of like busting your ass and doing stuff and Synthetics like comes out and is doing very similar stuff. It's a, it's a good sign that you're kind of doing the right thing, but the, the, the launch now isn't going to exist long-term. Like What's the, the
1: timeline you're looking at? Like, Years, months, six, weeks?
0: No, no, like six, like hopefully in January. Okay. Hopefully before January, but like in I mean the the launch now is gonna be built in a in a couple weeks is the easiest way. So to the, put
1: launch down, the launch it. the launch now is kind of like whatever the co-founders and the initial people are to be voting and allocating the different funds because you guys know the project well, until that is a bit more stable, then you move into the Barn Bridge Dow, which is where community is, is governed by community.
0: Yep. And the launched out, I mean, right now it's not a decentralized prop. I mean, it is to a certain extent, like there's like 12 stakeholders, like a lot of everybody that's involved with it are industry leaders. Um, the actual like bond token though, will govern the actual barn bridge Dow that will release at the same time that the smart yield product does. So like, um, the BB vote tokens aren't like, aren't going to be, imp- they're just, I mean, they'll just be like a token that you were a part of the original Barnbridge DAO, but like, or like the original Launch DAO, but there won't be any like fees from the platform accruing to the Launch DAO. Like, once there's, once the actual Smart Yield product is live and it's like similar to how like Compound and Uniswap are essentially charging like 30 basis points or some amount of like fee accrual mechanism, that's all going to accrue in the actual Barnbridge DAO. The, the launch DAO will be pointless at that point. It won't have any authority over Barnbridge.
1: Okay, so let's backtrack a bit. What is the bond token and what is the BB vote token?
0: The BB vote token is just the governance token of the launch DAO and the bond token is the governance token of the Barnbridge DAO. So there, there won't be a point to the BB vote token or the launch DAO by, okay. the, time, by the time that we launch the Barnbridge DAO.
1: So when people put money in now, do they get bond token or do they get BB vote token?
0: They get bond token. So there's all so who's the holding Barn... BB
1: vote token now. What's up? Who's holding the BB vote token?
0: Just us and the seed round founders. Uh, and the,
1: So the, uh, BB, the BB vote token will the only box. exist on the launch DAO? whereas the bond token, which is already distributed to the community, will play a role in the barn bridge when it's live.
0: Yep. The BB vote token right now really only handles how that seed round is getting like paid out so that we can get to the Uh barn bridge now.
1: Okay, got it. Like there's not actually a
0: point of of it long-term.
1: Okay, so the bond token is an ERC-20 token but it also is a non-fungible token, which is an ERC-721. What does, how yeah. does that work?
0: So that's the part where we technically have three tokens right now. The, uh-huh. the ERC-721 ha- also does not have anything to do with the BarnBridge DAO. It was essentially a mechanism that I created uh, in order to track early stage uh, participants mm-hmm. uh, on the platform, like strong like community members So a lot of people in crypto are essentially uh, like they're like anonymous frogs. And so as we grow, I think like um, a lot of like founders from what I've noticed will forget or like when their companies become successful, they'll essentially hit a point where like they no longer need the people that were like super early stage helpers. but like they shouldn't forget like what their contributions were. Uh, And like too many people do that. They like get successful and then they're just like too good for everybody else. And so there were a couple of reasons that I created the NFT. I mean, one, we were looking into NFTs for whether or not we would use them in the actual protocol because like a lot of like the actual like fixed income paying instruments would be like one of one. So were we going to use like an actual, like, non-fungible token or were we essentially uh, going to have all of those as like custom ERC20s that are proof of liquidity. And so like as we were doing like deep, deep research into whether like NFTs had a meaningful fit on like the actual bond bridge protocol, I just started the bond ERC or the bond NFT thing like just for fun. Like I mean it was it's not just for fun. Like I mean it's similar to like it's just an early stage community tracking mechanism for me. And for the community, it's like a badge of honor that like they were involved in the project early, um, um, et cetera, et cetera.
1: So the bond so ERC-20 token? 20 to the bond. Sorry? The
0: actual bond token mm-hmm. that manages the BarnBridge DAO and has governance over uh, all of our products, uh, forever right like that's the bond erc 20 token that's what people are farming right now every other token is either just for fun or it's going to be phased out none of it will actually be used in governance in any capacity on the platform i mean there may be a scenario for the bond er the bond nft that i provide some type of retroactive rewards like uniswap socks but Hmm. it's not it's not actually like the uni token right like it's just basically all these other tokens were a means to an end to get to the bond token. And then that's the only token that you ever have to worry about.
1: Okay, so you have three, to summarize, you have three tokens. You have the bond token, the bond ERC20 token, which is a governance token. You have the BB vote ERC20 token, which is something that you are using to be voting in your initial DAO system for whoever they started early. And then you have the bond 721, which is a bond NFT token. And that is just kind of for fun to try how things work.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Okay. Got it. Okay, so I think we've got the token stuff out of the way. How does Bridge work? Yeah. So going back to
0: like the original conversation that I was having about uh, how like TradFi institutions are very, very like unlikely to add Bitcoin or Ethereum into their portfolios, just like as like the entire like Bitcoin or Ethereum, they don't wanna bite off the entire risk curve, right? Like they don't wanna essentially buy into these like highly volatile assets. Um, So what I started thinking about was there's two ways that an underlying asset is going to fluctuate in value, which has to do with like, you can just call that risk, right? Like there's, there's two ways that you can look at risk for an underlying asset. Option one is that the income streams, like what we learned in in finance, uh, like in college was, you know, an asset's worth the future value of cash flows, right? So those cash flows can fluctuate, right? Like rent goes down in a market, uh, then essentially the prices of homes in the market will go down because you can't, you know, get as much rent for that house, so like it's not worth this much. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bonds are a little bit different because they represent like a fixed income stream, but they were sold at a certain point. So like when bond, when interest rates go down, the prices of bonds go up, but that's actually um, more so because of people are looking at like new issued bonds versus like aftermarket traded bonds. Like the, the new issue bonds, if interest rates go down, all, the, the price of those bonds will actually go down. But the ones that are in the aftermarket, they go up because it's harder to get that same income stream, right? So like bonds are a little bit complicated, but you can still think that they work in the same way as, as rent. If, if rent goes down, if yield goes down, new issuance of bonds, like the price is going to go down. Same for... Uh, for dividends, right? Like if, if dividends are paying and co- go down, the stock, the equity is gonna go down. So like, that's the main way that uh, that we were taught that like these underlying assets are supposed to fluctuate in value. However, you have things like gold, you have copper, you have like, you know, derivatives contracts that don't have coupons attached to them. You have synthetics, like like what synthetics is making which would be like a derivative of something that may not actually have a cash flow attached to it. Um, and then you also have crypto, which, like, you know, it, it is technically a commodity, but it doesn't behave in the same way as a commodity. I mean, there's other things that you can do with these like crypto economic systems, and they fluctuate like very, very drastically in value, but they don't, you know, bit. Bitcoin doesn't have a coupon attached to it. ETH isn't a productive asset yet. So like, why are these things fluctuating so drastically in value if there are no future cash flows, right? Like gold doesn't fluctuate this much. So I started to think about all of the different ways that you can track and measure these risks. Uh, and if there was some way like on chain where you could start essentially trading in and out of like the chances that these things were going to happen because uh, I, I really like to think about things in terms of like risk and bets and hedging bets. And uh, when we're essentially buying into crypto, what these TradFi institutions w- don't want to do is they don't want to buy into the th- entire risk curve. And so I was thinking that like every dollar of a Bitcoin doesn't deserve the same upside and downside because like say it's at a thousand bucks, like the chances that it's going to dip from there down to 500 are different than the chances that it would dip from 500 to like $1. Right. So like not every dollar necessarily deserves the same upside and downside. And like, that's not really anything that I started thinking about until I started to understand smart contracts. So, What I really started to think about with BarnBridge is, and again, I wrote this white paper in like April, May, 2019. Like this was back when like MakerDAO had just done like $100 million of uh, TVL on their platform. Hayden from Uniswap had like, I think done just like $3 million of like swaps on his platform. And I remember looking at those technologies and thinking like there's going to be like a million make, like there's going to be a five maker DAOs, right like and this the, these like pools that uh Hayden's doing where like an automated market maker can replace a club like if you think about like decentralized money all around the world pulling into these pools and taking fees that someone like Fidelity would have originally taken like you're talking about like billions, if not like trillions of dollars of like liquidity pools. Right. Mm -hmm. So I started to think about all the different types of like products that you could structure if like, you didn't have to rely on like a centralized order book, or if you didn't have to rely on, uh, if you could just like trustlessly plug into an income stream from MakerDAO without even needing their permission and restructuring it and like all the different types of things you could do with it. So, when we originally were talking about Barnbridge, the concept, I called it a fluctuations derivatives market that worked cross protocol. And I don't think anybody really understood what that meant. So I really started to think about like, what's the underlying aspect of what we're doing at Barnbridge Mm -hmm. and we're tokenizing risk. Like those two original risks that I talked about, the chances that the income stream is gonna fluctuate or that the income stream does fluctuate and you make less money. And then the chances that the underlying price of an asset would fluctuate, the risk of those two things happening can be tokenized. And then you can essentially create an aftermarket of all sorts of derivative contracts that allow you to trade in and out of risk that you absolutely can't do without smart contracts. So like what Barnbridge is doing that's very different than a lot of the DeFi projects that are coming to market right now is it's, it's not a copy paste product. It's not even anything that I've ever read about. It's what we're doing is we're token, we're allowing you to trade in and out of, of the risk that an asset would change in price.
1: Okay, so let me, let me see, if, correct me if I'm wrong. So what Bumbridge is doing is to with Yearn, with Yearn Finance, you have different vaults, right? You can put money into the vaults and you get returns based on how these vaults work. So it could be a die vault, and then it goes into you get returns from that. What Bumbridge is doing is to create vaults, but instead of die being, instead of looking at APY of die of your different vaults, different types of vaults, you're looking at the two types of risk that you're talking about. So one type of vault structure is looking at your price fluctuation risk. The other type of vault structure is your your APY because it's like interest rate risk. And so based on that, your vault now becomes more than just one asset. It's a different different types of assets that you have to put into this, this vault that people can invest in. So cookie jar, I like to use the cookie jar because analogies are the easiest to understand. You've got cookie jar and this cookie jar has chocolate chip cookies and macadamia nut cookies. They have two two very different kind of assets with very different types of returns. You put them inside together to hedge your risk or hedge your market price risk, like hedge the interest rate risk or hedge the, the market price risk. And people can invest in this cookie jar. Is that how BoneBridge works? In a very, very simple explanation.
0: Um, all right, so like what I think that YFI is doing that's so interesting is one, the way that they distributed their token, I thought was like extremely innovative. And that's probably the place that I borrowed from like YFI the most, I like, how Wi-Fi to me almost represents like programmatic, it's almost like a robo-advisor, like its role isn't necessarily, I, I've i seen people say we're very similar to Wi-Fi and I honestly think we're like completely different. I think Wi-Fi is more similar to like a Harvest or like a Rari Capital where you're, you're able to invest in structures to like maximize return, right? There's not a lot of like, so it's almost like an ETF, like you can invest in like a high risk or low risk ETF. So like it's some, it's a little bit similar to like tokenizing risk, but you're really almost like investing in different strategies, like in the same way that like when you go and pick an ETF, you can invest in like a Latin American market strategy or you can be like, I want bonds and and out of China And so I think that they've done like a genius job figuring out how to pull into all of these different pools and like allow people to have more like exposure to things that they wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. And they like represent it in a vault. So you just kind of sit in that vault and you get those returns. And like, that's that's the way YFI works. Mm -hmm. We would plug into YFI Yep. the way that like you can think about Barnbridge is like we would essentially plug into a Fi. Mm-hmm. we probably won't early on just because like w- early on we need to be most worried about like liquidity because you need enough liquidity to structure these um products but think about like in this scenario if YFI was Abe mm-hmm. we can plug into Abe with like die, right and dye on like a 30 60 90 day average you're looking at like a five to nine percent like variable interest rate yep. well yep. Fi, all of their interest rates are are variable too like one day the pool that you're investing in maybe i mean they have crazy returns on Fi, right like so some days they're they're absurd some days they're not like in traditional finance you're not really uh investing in like these very they're like variable and new like annuities essentially like they last forever there's not like fixed income um and i think wi-fi will come up with that i think like ave will essentially come up with that like the ability to have like fixed income what uh what barnbridge is doing is is very very different than that we're essentially taking income streams from uh like wi-fi and then we're essentially restructuring them into various tranches so like to start, we're just gonna have like high risk and low risk, or you can think of it as, some people call that senior debt, some people call it junior debt. There's also mezzanine debt, which you can start to do extremely cool things with, but like we won't get there just because it's complicated for this conversation. But we're essentially just taking the income streams from something like Ave, YFI, Rari Capital, we could integrate with Harvest. And we're essentially saying, we're going to now take this like variable income stream and we're going to restructure the risk in ways that ensures a fixed coupon. But then also if interest rates go up, we'll also, uh, the fixed coupon doesn't get an an uptick in, uh, in the interest that would come in, right? Like some people just want to lock in a rate. So like, I would like to go on YFI and just like lock in a high rate of fixed interest, right? And then other people are just gonna wanna say like this big yield farming's coming. A lot of people are gonna start using Wi-Fi. They wanna take a bet that the interest rates are gonna go up. Like you you can't currently do that in crypto. And even if they make fixed streams in crypto on something like Wi-Fi or Aave, then what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna take in that fixed stream and then I'm gonna restructure all of that risk, right? Like, so we're, we're basically not taking any money and putting it to work with like complex strategies like YFI or RARI. We are essentially just plugging in, uh, this is on the yield side, Mm -hmm. we're just plugging into pre-existing income streams and then we're restructuring the risk out and then those will exist as their own proof of liquidity with aftermarket uh, Mm -hmm. like that can be traded in the secondary market that represent what that is then you can just go stake it and pull back out essentially what's left in the smart contract after maturity.
1: Okay. So let's see if I got this right now. What we have in the existing DeFi system? We have like YFI, we have Compound, we have Aave. They have variable interest rates. So when I put my money in, I have an idea of what money, of what returns I'm taking, but it changes day to day. What Brian Bridge is doing is I put my money in and I know that at every week, I will get X amount of money back. So it's it's a fixed income. And what Bumbridge does at the back end is whatever whatever way you're gonna allocate your capital to ensure that you get your fixed, your fixed weekly returns.
0: Yeah, but there's also gonna be variable returns. It's basically just allowing you to move into various parts of the risk curve and have a representation of that risk that you can then go trade. Cause like the risk is that people think of risk as loss, but risk is also like upside, right? Like you can also like have the reward side of risk. So it's, it's just a tokenized risk reward component that, and this is just one example of like, of the ways that you can use this technology that I think a lot of the market has really looked into because they've been like, well, we want this like fixed income aspect in crypto like we want the cdo component in crypto because it's way more efficient than what like happened in 2008 if there were cdos in 2008 that were run on distributed ledger technology there would have never been a financial crisis but more so what i'm saying is that one use case of this concept of being able to tokenize risk is being able to like somewhat easily introduce fixed income uh and then also allow you to bet on the chances that interest rates would go up. So you're, you essentially exist in a singular, a singular pool, you sell off and you're the junior tranche. You're the high risk tranche. You sell off your risk to the senior tranche. So then if interest rates go up, the senior tranche that bought that risk from you is not getting the upside they're already locked in right like they they bought that fixed upside that caps at maybe two percent right
1: okay so before we dive deeper into understanding what you've mentioned just now what is a tranche
0: so i use that term in a way that probably (laughs) isn't completely accurate because there's not like a word for on the smart alpha side like we, there's two products like there we call it smart yield and smart alpha smart yield and it stands for structured market adjusted risk tranches tranches are like buckets of a whole bunch of assets like after they've been cut up so like you basically take like a box or like like a cookie jar in your scenario and you put like a home in the cookie jar you put like that's paying like uh rent you you put uh a whole bunch of like dividends uh paying equities in a cookie jar right uh you you can put like all sorts of assets in this cookie jar and then you can essentially like structure out the cookie jar in terms of risk and then sell it out accordingly and be like this bucket of assets in the cookie jar are low risk these ones are medium risk these ones are high risk so like when you take this like cookie jar of all sorts of different cookies, and then you cut it into three parts, those three parts are are called a tranche. It's like a representation of uh, risk in a basket of assets. But that exists for yield, like in TradFi, like the tranches are essentially like they exist in MBS. You take a whole bunch of like rent, uh, and yield from like various markets around the world and you put them into this like securitized asset and then you splice it out into like high risk low risk and you go sell the high risk mbs you sell the medium the mezzanine risk mbs and you sell the low risk mbs those are just called tranches like
1: in, in traditional finance let's explain that in cookie jar form so i've got a cookie jar and i've got 12 different kind of cookies in there i've got Then I split them into three different groups, three different categories. So the first one will be like all the kind of chocolate chip cookies in there. And everyone likes chocolate chip cookies. So that is something that's a bit low risk. You know that everyone's gonna buy this set of, it's like a gift, it's like a gift cookie jar. uh, No, it's like a chocolate chip cookie mix. So it has has cooked all the chocolate chip cookie. And then the middle one will be stuff like your different nuts and whatever. And then the bottom one will be like raisins. Nobody really likes raisins but they exist. So this cookie jar has all these different cookies inside the jar. Now I'm just splitting this jar into stuff that everyone likes, stuff that in general people in general are okay with it, and then stuff that nobody really likes. So each of this category, like the cookie jar, the cookies that everyone likes, the cookies that okay amount of people like, and the cookies that nobody likes, each of this set is called a trench. And then people can buy these different trenches.
0: Yeah, I mean, the cookie jar analogy is kind of messing me up a lot, uh, a little bit. But the way you could think about it is like, if there were some, like, if the raisin cookies could potentially make you a ton of money, right? Like every once in a while, like somebody's going to come in town and they just buy like raisin cookies for $1,000. There's a a big party of
1: raisin cookies. Like it's not, nobody really likes raisin cookies, but those people who love them will buy a lot of them. So it's quite a risky asset because nobody is buying them. But when someone buys, someone buys a lot. Yep, Yeah. And so that subcategory of of this kind of assets where nobody really wants to buy them, but when someone buys, people buy a lot. You know, that kind of risk-return structure is one form of trench. Yep. Okay. So you mentioned that you have two types of financial products in foreign bridge. The first one is to mitigate interest rate volatility and the second one is to mitigate price exposure and do you understand
0: the interest rate volatility one though before i I go on because i feel like if if, Mm. if it doesn't make sense then people watching this won't get it either
1: exactly so i want to go deeper into because we have two things right we have the interest rate volatility risk mitigation and the price exposure risk mitigation so let's dive a little bit deeper into the interest rate risk mitigation so Firstly, where does interest rate comes from? And secondly, where does the volatility comes from?
0: Just to be clear, we have only been talking about the interest rate one so far. So, and it doesn't have to be an interest rate. It could be a dividend. It could be a, it could be rent. If people fractionalize real estate, it can be right now in the ecosystem, all of the uh, yield is primarily coming from at least downstream, like lending fees to, to traders. So like Ave, Compound, MakerDAO, they're lending money to traders. Uh, and that's where the yield and the ecosystem's coming from. The other place that yield is coming from is what Barnbridge is doing right now, which is yield farming. Um, you're essentially distributing governance tokens and people uh, think that, uh, these governance tokens are gonna to have some type of value long-term mm-hmm. and they have value at the day that they begun, begin trading. So like on uh, basically 24 hours from now, barn, the bond token is, is going to be distributed to the ecosystem. There will be then be price discovery and yep. people put $200 million into that contract chasing after 32,000 uh, bond tokens. Well, there's essentially going to be like an APY or like an annualized percentage of yield that is that helps you decide uh, what your return on investment was for letting that money uh, essentially sit in that pool. So there's, there's two sides of yield in crypto that I think the industry needs to be like acutely aware of. It's that like yield farming is not like long-term sustainable. Like we can't just like keep printing... Food tokens um, in order for these like APYs to stay like psychotically high, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, the, and there's only going to be like so many good ideas per year that come into the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So, though there will be valuable governance that comes into the ecosystem and mm-hmm. people will make a lot of money, but I think it will more be like retroactively looking where like the APY on like. The day of launch is like far far lower than like the long-term look at what APY would have been in that scenario and I don't think that enough people actually understand that uh that that those governance tokens aren't like promised to actually be worth anything that's like being run up by people speculating but what MakerDAO and Aave and Compound are doing those are long-term sustainable the, and I think that uh, the, the way that MakerDAO works in order to use smart contracts to, to cut out like attestation, escrow, um, uh, attribution, and then also like just settlement, uh, that cuts out so much like middlemen and like red, t- uh, just so, so much paperwork at the end of the day that if you can assume that like smart contracts make just like a simple loan, like five basis points more mm-hmm. efficient, every single loan in the entire world long-term will run on chain unless like a superior technology comes out because like working capital will chase uh, higher yields mm-hmm. and a five basis point improvement for, like, for all bonds, right? Like. You just need that efficiency where like the risk is looked at as being the same. Right now, the risk isn't the same. There's like smart contract risk. There's like actual risk there. But those are gonna get normalized over time. And, and at some point, uh, like a mechanism like Aave, MakerDAO, Compound, they're actually going to be more efficient assuming equal risk. And they'll, it's probably gonna be far more than like five basis points of efficiency. And so you start moving like traditional things uh, on chain, like BlockFi, the reason their interest rates are high is like they're in like TradFi lending, right? Like you start moving mortgages on chain, you start moving like- I'm corporate-
1: gonna pause you for there got- right now, because we're going into something very complicated. Let's pull back a little bit to what you have right now. So in smart yield bond, you're basically looking at mitigating your interest rate volatility risk. And you're getting, in, as you mentioned, you're getting interest rates from two areas. One is the lending markets that's available on Ave compound maker. And the other interest rate that you're talking about is all these governance tokens being traded in secondary market and having a uh, interest rate returns on them. Is yep. that what you're saying? Yep. So you, I get- mean,
0: it's anywhere yields coming from it's so a lot of what these like robo, robo yield farming groups are doing is they're trying to maximize yield farming revenue. <laughs> But there's also just traditional yield in the marketplace that's just from lending to traders. And yeah. there will be more uh, there will be more, more avenues for
1: getting yield, yield right? Market.
0: Yeah. Anywhere that there's yield, we can structure and tokenize it.
1: Okay, makes sense. And the other so that's the that's the yield aspect of bonds. And then you have a different one called Smart Alpha Bond. And what is that about?
0: So uh, they essentially do very similar things. They're just hedging against, uh, different, uh, different risks. So same thing, like smart is structured market adjusted risk tranches. This is where tranche like doesn't really actually have a word in traditional finance. Cause you cannot do this that I'm about to explain in traditional finance, what you can essentially do. The smart alpha product is, is relatively easy to understand even for someone that doesn't know a ton about finance. It's just a little more difficult to build. Uh, You basically take, um, say ETH's worth $100 in this scenario. This is gonna be a whole bunch of $100 Ethereum's in this scenario, so don't, it's not actually just one ETH, like think about like a billion dollars worth of $100 ETH, but just to keep the math simple for this example, you're gonna take one ETH, you're gonna put it into a smart contract and, the day that it's essentially wrapped in a smart contract, it will be stamped with like an Oracle. uh, So it's like worth a hundred die that day, right? Mm -hmm. What you're doing then is you're splitting it out into two new Ethereums that represent $50 worth of Ethereum and $50 or 50 die worth of Ethereum, 50 die worth of Ethereum. At some date in the future, it will auto liquidate into an automated market making pool. This is why Barnbridge couldn't have existed ago because when Hayden was doing like three million dollars of trades, it's just or like liquidity pools, it's not big enough. You need like billions of dollars of liquidity pools because you have to know that the liquidity pool is going to be there later to auto execute into. When you auto execute it like seven days, seven years, seven minutes, whatever the time frame is. Uh, there's gonna be either more than $100 worth of DAI left in the smart contract, or there's gonna be less than $100 worth of DAI in the smart contract. So let's say in this scenario, uh, ETH goes to $110. That means you have $10 of positive alpha. If ETH goes to $90, you have negative $10 of positive alpha. So what you're now doing is you've taken an Ethereum, and split it out, $100 of Ethereum, split it out into two $50 parts. What you can do is you can program that smart contract to say, this one represents 30% of the upside and downside volatility. This one represents 70% of the upside and downside volatility. So at the day that it auto-executes into that pool, at any point in the future, you can go stake it back into the smart contract and either take back $57 for the high-risk ETH, $53 for the low risk ETH, if it went down, you're essentially losing $7, you're losing $3. So what you've now done is you've created a new asset as a proof of liquidity of low risk ETH and high risk ETH that trades as its own thing that can then go and be used on like Aave or other places uh, to represent like collateral, they can be used in in yield pools, they can be borrowed lent. Uh, so you've basically taken the risk that ETH would go up and down and you've tokenized it in this scenario, giving a low risk entry point, high risk entry point. And then you can do that, if, assuming synthetics works out, you can do it with like synthetic Tesla, synthetic Mm -hmm. Apple. Uh, You can take the smart alpha products and tokenize those into low and high risk. So like, that's probably what I would do with, uh, with YFI, for instance, is I would take those tokens uh, that represent going after these high risk yield farming pools and I'd split and structure the risk out there and then you can resell that so I could buy into a low risk uh, tranche of like a wifi pool
1: so, okay I'm trying to wrap my head around that it's it's very interesting and if I could let's see if my explanation would work let's let's use cookies again I don't know if this this analogy will work but let's let's see so in cookies to make a chocolate chip cookie you need two main ingredients you need the chocolate chips and then you need the cookie like the cookie dough and basically these two these two mix makes, makes the same asset like together they come to create a chocolate chip cookie and the chocolate chips could have a very different risk profile as the cookie dough because you put them in different you structure them in different assets so the cookie dough could have a lower risk and then you put them in let's say coughs liquidity pool because they're all the same assets so that the Impermanent loss will be a bit less over there. And the chocolate chip goes into something that's a bit higher risk. So let's say, I don't know, like the, the doodoo, doo-doo uh, market maker. Have you heard of them? Yeah. So they do like pro, proactive market maker. So you, at the end of the day, still, they still come together to create the chocolate chip cookie, but you allocate them, you split them differently because and then you put them in different products to have different kind of risk exposure to their pricing at the end of the day. Because these products at, at the back end that nobody sees are constantly being traded by high-frequency traders, arbitragers, people doing exchange. And so- Are you
0: talking about like the LP reward token? Like like in like our case, you can essentially take like the the when you like, so tomorrow there will be like pool two that opens. It's essentially like the, the representation of like your uh liquidity reward for like the the USDC bond pool you get like the like LP USDC bond uni token is that what you No you're- no no
1: so okay let's let's stick to I've got 100 USDC
0: mm-hmm. now
1: i can split 100 USDC into 50 50 USDC goes into calls liquidity pool to to be a liquidity liquidity provider and my my 50 USDC sits in that pool my other 50 USDC goes into something like Dodo, and sits in the liquidity pool. And me putting the money there, now instead of putting that 100 USDC into Uniswap liquidity pool, I give 100 USDC to you and you help me to split it into these two different different, uh, market makers, like automated market makers.
0: And what- Mm-mm. That wouldn't be how this, that would be more similar to what YFI is, is doing. This would basically what this would do is, is like if you were going to u- use USDC in this product, mm-hmm. you would you're pegging it against something else. So you could peg like USDC to die and split it into a chance of it, it fluctuating to create like a super low risk asset. But like you wouldn't you wouldn't you're not doing anything with this token, these proofs of alpha risk after uh, they're done like we're not we're not actually, the, the, the function of it is just to auto liquidate into a pool. You, the only thing that you're hedging against is the chance that an asset will change in price against another asset.
1: Okay, so let's take an example. Let's say I, I give you 100, 100 die into your smart alpha bond and I'm looking at a 70% risk, like a 70-30 risk profile. Is that something that you have?
0: Well, it would be like die to another asset. So like you, what you're doing is you're basically taking die, and you're saying that it would appreciate or depreciate to another asset, like ETH, for instance,
1: So, or,
0: so, okay. or like YFI.
1: Maybe, ex- can you say an example of what is a smart alpha bond? Like one of the smart alpha bonds that you have.
0: So ETH ETH DAI would be an example. Like that's the scenario where you have like a hundred dollars worth of ETH. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to at some point auto liquidate into a pool and there's going to be more or less than a hundred dollars worth of DAI left in that pool.
1: So in that bond, do I only provide ETH into that bond or do I have to provide ETH and DAI into that bond?
0: You only provide ETH into the bond.
1: So when I provide ETH into the bond, it will automatically liquidate into DAI. Yep. Why don't I just give you die instead? And In
0: which side of the tranche?
1: So you have an ETH-DAI bond, right? Yep. So step one, you have an ETH-DAI bond. Step two is I give you ETH and you will, I give you ETH to contribute to the bond. Step three is that you take that ETH and you liquidate that into DAI.
0: Yeah.
1: And step four is?
0: So you're doing it at a point in the future, though, is the is what's different. You're, uh, you're algorithmically trusting that the smart contract is going to liquidate that die into another pool, and then you're selling off the low-risk tranche to another person.
1: Okay, so, so I don't get it anymore. Huh? I don't get that anymore.
0: So basically what you would do is you would take DAI and you would buy into a 30% price exposure for ETH or a 70% price exposure for ETH. So you take 30, uh, you take 50 DAI and you either buy a $50 ETH tranche that represents 30% of the upside and 30% of the downside of the entire $100 ETH. Or you're buying into the higher risk tranche that represents seventy percent of the upside and seventy percent of the downside of um, the hundred dollar e. ETH.
1: So it's a tranche within a tranche. So a tranche that is hundred die goes into thirty percent upside die and seventy percent upside die. Is that what you're saying? Say wait, say that again. So you said that I give a hundred a hundred die into the a tranche. And it 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 gives me exposure to one one part of the exposure is a 30 percent upside. So thirty like thirty die goes into that and then seventy die goes into another tranche that is seventy percent upside.
0: So you're basically creating one one pool, right? And it represents a hundred dollars worth of Ethereum, right? Okay. At some point in the future. It's going to auto liquidate into a pool. What you're then doing is you're splitting it out where one group has is not biting off the entire risk curve. They only represent 30% of the actual upside and downside, which means that if ETH goes to uh, from $100 to $1,000, right, that 30% tranche that someone bought into is not going to make. Uh, their upside, they're guaranteeing that to the other
1: side, to the, to the other group, they're guaranteeing upside to the high risk. That means for every tranche, there is always a counterparty that exists. So for every 30% upside, there will always be a 70% upside downside that exists. So every there, for every tranche that exists, it's always existing as a pair.
0: Yep, there's always a counterparty that's either winning or losing the trade.
1: Okay, so, okay, let me get this. Let me get this straight. But so if it I'm goes not...
0: down, mm-hmm. the low risk side doesn't lose as much money.
1: Yep. Okay, so let me, how can I explain this in simple terms? So I have, like you have an asset that is, Okay, maybe before we go to that, where is your? How do you define your your thirty percent risk and seventy percent risk? So I, you just have a hundred ETH, a hundred Dai given to the the smart alpha bond, and then the smart then then the smart alpha bond in in six months will be liquidating that into or that smart alpha bond will be turning that hundred ETH, a hundred Dai. Okay, sorry. Restart. Step one is give 100 die to the bond. Step two is that in six months' time, that return will exist and we have no idea what that return is. And step three is that the return will split into two different parts. One is that you get 30% of risk exposure, one is 70% risk exposure. That means in six months' time, when this 100 die becomes, 100, 100, becomes $110, then the part with 30% increase will get $3 and the part with 70% risk gets $7. And it becomes 90 and then they lose equivalent amount. Yep. So that's how you define your, your returns. Yep. Okay. And it doesn't,
0: have, I mean, not to make this more complicated, but it doesn't have to be 70, 30. I yeah, just yeah. Use it,
1: it depends on, on whatever risk that people are comfortable with. Okay, yep. so now my question is, where do you get the returns from? Just by trading, or just by saying that the in
0: six time- just alpha. it's just it's just the fluctuation of market price from ETH to DIE. So basically, the return in this isn't there's no yield attached to it. Basically, okay. like when Bitcoin goes from ten thousand dollars to five thousand dollars, we're pricing that in dollars, right? So there's negative five thousand dollars of alpha. You mm-hmm. took a negative fifty percent alpha return. So your price exposure just- is
1: spot price. So your price huh? exposure is spot price in secondary market. That's how you define the price in step one. You know, step one, we say that I give you a hundred die in six months time, I want to know what the return is. So in six months time, you turn that die into whatever uh, and you check, the, or you, you take that, you buy another asset during the six months and then you get into, then you, you find out what the return is in six months. And if you're in the 30% risk, then you get 30% of the upside or 30% of the downside. If you're in the 70% trend or the, the whatever stuff, then you get 70% upside or 70% downside. Yeah. Okay. Got it.
0: So basically all you're hedging against in that scenario is market is market price fluctuations. And the original one you're, you're hedging against yield, right? You're like changes in yield and this scenario you're hedging against the chance that that asset will move in price without even having to worry about yield.
1: Okay, got it. So now comes the question, why do you need people to contribute to the pool initially? Because all the risks are available, all the variable interest rates and all the fixed interest rate calculation in terms of interest rate volatility are available. And for the price exposure, you can't define any of the prices anyway. So why do you need people to contribute to the pool initially? Why can't you just calculate the different risk and prices that's available right now to create this bond stuff?
0: I don't know if I completely understand your question. Like why you, you, cause you, are you asking why you need liquidity versus just like creating it as an Oracle system?
1: So right now you guys did some you guys got funds, right? You guys got funds into the protocol. And from what I've read in the white paper, it said, firstly, you have funds in the protocol. First step is to have funds in the protocol. Second step is to use these funds to look at the different kind of allocation, risk risk return allocation mechanism. And then the third step is to look, to structure these return, risk return mechanisms. And then other people can, can be purchasing these different tranches. Is that how you're working right now? Are you asking
0: about the money that's in the pool right now?
1: Kind of. Okay, so the first step is people putting money into the pool. Second step is with the money in the pool, you start creating these different kinds of bonds. And then the third step is now now that you've got money into the pool, now you can define how much, what's the exposure of these bonds. You define the risk of these bonds and people can add additional money in. Is that what you are doing right now?
0: The, the money that's in the pool right now is, is a proof of, of capital distribution of the original token. And like the same way that like Bitcoin...
1: No, that's not what I'm asking it. about. So there are two ways to get started with your bonds. The first one is people put capital in. And based on the capital, you structure the different kinds of bonds. Which are your different risk volatil your different risks? The second step is that you create these different bonds that exist and define the risk, then people put money in. In both
0: scenarios, like every single like DeFi asset is like a pool. So like you're creating a pool of capital and then you're making that pool of capital behave in a certain like pre-designed way. So you're what do you mean by you?
1: you make the pool des- defined in a pre-designed way because you can define that as a 30% risk. You 30% risk, you structure that as a 30% risk.
0: Yeah, but you're doing that ahead of time. So like, the, I mean, you can call them like vaults, you can call them pools, you can call yeah. them liquidity. Is it, everything, in, in crypt, everything in DeFi is essentially pools of capital that are behaving in a way that was, they were programmed to behave. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense?
1: Yes, makes sense.
0: So in this scenario, you, you have to have the pr- you have to have a pool of capital in order to sell the risk or like tokenize the risk of it. I mean, you don't have to, but. Yeah,
1: that's my, pro- that's my question. Be.
0: I don't think you don't have be. to,
1: but why do you guys start with that? Because you can you define that guys, risk I mean, based on the interest rates that's available right now.
0: You do have to, I mean, like you, cause Otherwise, you get into like you're gonna create an insolvent system. Like if you you can't just represent risk as a number, like and like sell that because then if you're wrong, who's ta- who's gonna supply the other side of the bet? Like who's because gonna pay? It back?
1: The whole idea of smart contract is that it can auto, it can take in a lot of date, a lot of information and price information by oracles or whatever to be restructuring the risk so that you always maintain a thirty percent. Risk exposure. Right? So that is how I understand things. So, in that sense, is your smart contract doing that? So, it it always gets, it always aggregates price information by oracles to, for this bond to have a 30% risk structure. And people can, if people want this 30% risk structure, they put capital in there. Then your smart contract will continuously maximize the 30% risk structure based on the new capital coming in.
0: No, it's, you're just deciding like a, in the scenario of 30% for the alpha product, we're just agreeing before money goes into the contract that you're using, like what, like you're going to know ahead of time, like, this is the Oracle that, that nor that normalizes all of this. Like, this is the Oracle that we're essentially using, um, in order to determine what the price was at the day that it was like wrapped. But like, we're not like constantly updating like Oracle price fees in the alpha product. All we're doing is stamping it on day one with an Oracle. And then we're saying, this is what comes out of it. So like our reliance on oracles is is more so to determine, it's probably more so on the yield side of things than it is on the alpha side of things. On the yield side of things, we need to essentially to determine what the rate of interest was when we when someone bought into the pool so that we can calculate their return but there is going to be an actual return in all of these scenarios like they're not just to, they're tokenized representations of real risk not like tokenized representations of like what risk is in the ecosystem i don't think that would work because there wouldn't be the system would blow up like if you basically take a side of a bet Mm -hmm. and there isn't someone on the other side to pay it back like yeah you won the bet but like does it really matter because you didn't get paid
1: okay so for let's say let's talk about the smart yield bond the the smart yield bond is to look at what kind of fix almost like a let's look at smart yield bond as a fixed income structure product so if i put money into the smart yield bond and i want to get ten dollars every month, then you could structure it that way. So when I'm, and that exists in the traditional finance anyway. So the cool thing about decentralized finance is that you've got smart contracts at the back of behind the scenes doing all these structuring of products, which is which can be very cool, which is very powerful and a big efficiency plus point compared to traditional finance because with traditional finance, it's more static. So what I'm asking is that is your, is Bridge having a very dynamic smart contract that links to Oracle prices or links to whatever inputs and variables that you're doing, so that every time someone adds new capital into this smart yield bond, that gives you that with this fixed income smart yield bond, you're always restructuring the product at the back end to give you to maintain that $10 monthly return, that fixed income return every month. And with any additional value that you get, it goes into the it goes into the DAO system, it goes into the protocol, whatever it is. But it at least it constantly restructures at the back end done by smart contracts and oracles to give you that fixed income stream. Is that what you guys are doing?
0: Yes. I mean, not, that's not exactly the way that we're doing it, but in theory, that's the way that it will structure. And then if there's not enough money in the income stream, similar to traditional markets, like things can blow up, right? Like, you're basically guaranteeing that, that two percent fixed stream but if if like ave stops paying that for a long enough period of time like the variable pool will blow up right like
1: yes for sure. so
0: but yeah i mean the, the way you described it in general theory is how the product works the the details uh not a hundred percent but like close enough so right it, now you
1: guys are static right right now your your smart contract defines how you're going to allocate your different products based on the capital that you have right now to define the risk exposure. And people just accept that, you know, if I want this risk exposure, that's where my capital is going to go. So it's it's static right now. Because what you guys are doing is structuring products. So the whole idea of structuring products is structuring how you're going to divide your capital into the different risk categories. There are two ways.
0: So- When this thing starts, like just to keep this like very simple, there's a lot of different ways that we can like structure these products. Like we're just going to start with like high risk and low risk, which in the yield scenario is variable and fixed. There also could be a mezzanine tranche that does all sorts of interesting things on like how one side is paid back to another. But in this scenario, just think that you're basically able to now plug into something like Ave, right? Mm-hmm. There's a 5% stated variable return on uh, die at the moment. Mm-hmm. So you're basically taking that 5% return and you're saying, we'll guarantee the fixed side gets like a 1% or 2% coupon for like 7 days. If it goes above 5%, and that, and Ave starts paying 10, 15, 20% on die. the fixed side's already locked in their return. The upside from that return goes to the variable pool. If it goes down, if it goes from 5% down to 1% and you've locked in the fixed at 2%, then the variable side is paying for that for those seven days to ensure the 2% back to the investor.
1: So, so the thing is, people can do that on their own. What you guys are doing is to aggregate all these different small little retail ways you're allocating funds and assets and to find. But counterparty how, how, risk. Would you
0: do that? how would you do that on your own? You would like go on the internet and find like another person. That yeah, was,
1: exactly. So um, you could do that on your own as in, in a peer to peer way, you find someone who, who will be a counterparty risk right now, you're aggregating all these different preferences to, to pair off these counterparty risks.
0: Well, in this scenario, it is like another person, like you're you're basically creating a pool of capital where there's going to be people who buy the senior tranche and then sit in the junior pool. So you are basically creating a marketplace where there's going to be people that buy the fixed rates and then there's going to be people who just sit in the variable pool because You always need
1: them to pair up, right? You can't have someone that's always buying the senior tranche without anyone buying the the ju- junior tranche. Yep, that's
0: right. So basically, if you just sat in the junior pool and nobody was interested in buying the risk, then you would just get the exact same uh, return as if you sat in the uh, in the Aave pool. Okay. Got it. So okay. you have to have the senior side mm-hmm. buy, right? And there may mm-hmm. not be a senior side. That's part of why we're most likely going to charge uh, money to the junior. We're, we're not sure if we're going to charge money to the senior side. Mm-hmm. at at creation but we're definitely going to charge money to the junior side uh, so so people don't just like uh hit our system with a whole bunch of like stupid pools that nobody's ever going to take start. the other side of okay. like nobody's going to take like uh when when die hits like some of those days that it hits like 60 70 percent mm-hmm. like nobody's going to set up a pool to ensure like a 25 percent fixed rate in crypto like okay. so and then the same way, if somebody says like, I'm gonna set up this pool so that there's like a 0.001%, like, and nobody's gonna buy it, right? Like, so you, you have to let the market structure itself. Some sides won't get taken, some sides will.
1: Okay, got it. So to summarize, you guys have two products. You have the smart yield bond and the smart alpha bond. The smart yield bond is your interest rate volatility or yield volatility. your yield volatility risk so right now most of the yield comes from interest rates in lending platforms in the future it could be a lot of different things it will be whatever it is whenever the 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 space offers these products the smart alpha bond is the the price exposure risk after a period of time so you have those information being set in your smart contract that gives you the price exposure and then you And in all these different bonds, you always have two parties, they are counterparties. One person takes higher risk, one person takes lower risk. And then you're almost like matching them off every time someone buys the 70%, someone else buys the 30% and the risk just passes off like that. So it becomes a bit more efficient in that way.
0: Yep. And then the one piece that's missing from Mm -hmm. all of that, you actually nailed it. The one piece that's missing from all of it is that in all of these scenarios, you get a tokenized representation of what Mm -hmm. you bought. And there will be an aftermarket for those as well. So like you can go on an exchange and like buy into a fixed rate that's already been bought that someone may wanna sell. So like when they wanna exit their position, there's essentially going to be people who are like, yeah, I, I actually want that. So they're gonna, once you get the new position, it will, those positions will fluctuate in price. So like if you wanna buy into like a fixed 3% pool of DAI, you 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 may have to pay more or less than the person that was originally willing to buy it, but like they they are going to exist and have secondary markets. So okay,
1: so you're going to start that... tokenizing these bonds as well. So which we is this tokenized version of bonds can be traded in secondary market, which is very different from the bond tokens, which is a governance token within the ecosystem.
0: Yep. So they're just going to rep, be represented as like proofs of liquidity, very similar to like. If you're yield farming and you go into a Uniswap pool Mm -hmm. and like you take both sides of the pool and you get that like LP uni or like a, you know like the curve pool token, the Mm -hmm. balancer pool tokens those are all called proofs of liquidity. So in the same way, these tokenized representations of risk are gonna have proofs of liquidity that will have a syntax that makes sense. So people understand what they are. There will be a secondary market for them. So then you can just start buying in and out of risk and trading in and out of risk all across the ecosystem in a way that like you really can't do right now.
1: Okay, got it. Awesome. Okay, that's very interesting. So we're basically tokenizing a lot of financial securities and financial products that exist in traditional finance and putting them on crypto with different risk exposure, different price exposure. And that's, that's very interesting space or there's a very interesting innovation for DeFi.
0: Yep for sure does it make more sense though do you understand why this is like very different than YFI
1: oh yeah yeah, for sure for sure absolutely yeah it's it's completely different because YFI is more of the different kind of returns whereas a YFI optimizes returns you guys Barnbridge optimizes risk oh no minimizes risk or allows it allows you to choose the different It doesn't risks.
0: minimize it. It just, yeah. it doesn't just minimize or maximize it. It just allows you to optimize. buy into exactly where you, where mm-hmm. you want to be on it. So just, like, if I want to maximize my risk, I could go into the riskiest YFI pool, mm-hmm. but maybe I like what that riskiest YFI pool is doing. I don't want to buy into the whole risk curve, right? Mm-hmm. Like I just kind of want to guarantee a high rate of return in that. And go focus on other things that day. So like what is it's not necessarily we don't really care what the risk what the returns are in the market. Mm -hmm.
1: It's just your risk exposure that you care about. So Wi-Fi cares about returns and then you guys care about your risk exposure, which is very important because the market is so volatile.
0: Yep, exactly.
1: Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time, Tyler. Do you have anything else you want to add before I say goodbye?
0: I would just say to anybody listening to this, if it's still confusing to you, understand that like if Hayden got on a call and tried to explain how an automated mar- market maker versus club works, that's also very complicated. The easiest way to think about this though, is that we'll have an interface like Ave or like uh, Zapper that basically just says like, or Zapper will do this for us. And it just says like high risk, like, pool, like low risk pool. And then same, like if you can envision like signing into like a Coinbase or Binance and buying a low risk Ethereum or a high risk Ethereum, the Mm -hmm. interface is what's gonna make this easy. Like the actual backend technology is complicated on all of these things. So (laughs) we're gonna have to work very hard on the interface side that makes this easy uh, because obviously like the average person you know, that uses Uniswap doesn't actually know how it works.
1: Mm, absolutely. I agree. Well, thank you so much, Tyler. It's 1240 AM on my side, and I got to go. Yeah. And-
0: Thanks for staying up, but yeah, it was good talking to you.
1: Yes. Goodbye. I'm just going to take care. Bye-bye.